I know the argument from the left is that we need to get rid of masculinity by whatever means possible because it's all toxic. But what if the antidote for our rotting culture isn't less masculinity, it's more? That's exactly what Turning Point USA believes and why we've launched a brand new event taking place in multiple cities around the U.S. called The Summit, just for men ages 16 to 40. The mission of The Summit is to revive the masculine heart firmly founded in biblical principles by creating men who are physically, mentally, and spiritually fit. The summit will help develop purpose-driven men who are leaders ready to serve their God, their family, and their nation. Male attendees should expect to be challenged in three directions, inward, outward, and upward. They will be immersed in harsh environments that will push them past their limits. They will be strengthened physically and spiritually with intense physical activity and mental conditioning. They will be prepared to battle against false ideologies through an understanding of strong men from the Bible and throughout history. The men will be encouraged to stand up for the weak, lead families, and guide communities, and be taught the value of self-control and doing what is right over what feels good. Apply at summit.tpusa.com, and a summit representative will work with you to ensure the man in your life is signed up for the best, most appropriate event based on his availability, interests, and age. Upcoming events will be in Palmdale and Ohio. California, Colorado Springs, Grass Range, and Fishtail, Montana, and soon-to-be-announced cities in Virginia and Texas. Spots are filling fast. Are you man enough? That's summit.tpusa.com. It's been ingrained in us for decades that school is supposed to look a certain way. Kids need to sit still, eat beige microwaved food, sit under fluorescent lighting for hours, lesson plans need to be one size fits all, and the arts and recess should be seen as luxuries if there is even time or a budget for it. The thing is, we send our kids to school to do what? To learn, right? But are they even learning? Today's guest believes that kids are better than the traditional education system gives them credit for. She wants parents to know that the classroom isn't the only place kids learn and that the truth is the classroom may very well be the most unproductive part of your child's day. That's why she founded Rebel Educator, which is described as an all-inclusive resource hub for parents, teachers, and entrepreneurs containing everything you need to transform your kid's education. Rebel Educator believes that your child was made to learn, explore, and create, and they want to help unleash all that potential. The founder is today's guest. She not only grew up as a homeschooler herself, but then she skipped college, she went into the startup world, and she has been dedicated to alternative education all along, acting as an advocate for things like school choice and unschooling. Please give a warm welcome to Hannah Frankman on The Spillover. Hannah, you have created a movement to totally rethink kids' education, K through 12, and your prediction is that sooner than we think, going to public school is going to feel like a 20th century idea. What do you mean by that? Well, it is a 20th century idea. The public school system was designed for a world that's very different than the world we live in now. And the minute the internet came online, our entire education system became obsolete because the whole thing was predicated on the assumption that Education needs a physical location to access, and parents can access worksheets, apps, recorded lessons from world-class teachers on any subject you could imagine from their laptops at home. And when that type of information access is available, why do you need school anymore? You don't. It's really just childcare. So the public education system, in my opinion, and I'm talking like kindergarten all the way through college has been obsolete for probably 30 plus years. And that might even be on the conservative side. It's just that most of the world hasn't caught up yet. This is so interesting. So what you're saying is beige food, fluorescent lighting, cement brick walls. You mean that's not con conducive to an amazing education for our children? <laughs> and we wonder why our kids are miserable. Yeah. We wonder why they're depressed and unhappy and don't want to learn and hide playing video games all day. And then you describe that environment. It's like plants would die. 
Like, you Dude, you're so right. And that's the thing, you know, what was really, uh, what really got the wheels turning for me is starting to think about this, this whole idea where we're telling little boys, you know, sit down, sit still, all of those things. Maybe they're not supposed to be sitting down and sitting still for seven hours a day. No, people are so quick to diagnose kids, especially little boys with things like ADHD. And we just default to thinking, well, something's wrong because they don't fit inside this artificial system we've constructed. So they must need medication to fit our system. Nobody stops to ask, maybe it's the system that's broken. Maybe our kids weren't designed to do this. By the time this interview goes live, we'll have published a piece, uh, a long-form Substack article about this whole question that you just asked, like what's happening in our school specifically to boys? Mm. Because it's much more harmful to them than it is to girls in the short term. In the long term, I think it's harmful to both, but you see the negative effects much more quickly in boys because it's just more obvious. Like, they're really full of energy. They're really rambunctious. They want to wrestle with each other. They want to fight a little. They want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to just sit still in a classroom and with their hands folded in their lap and listen to somebody talk for seven or eight hours a day. And that's perfectly normal. Like, right. they're, they're kids. It's so ridiculous. It's almost as if there are inerrant differences between the way a boy learns and the way a girl learns, and that's okay, yeah. and it's important to know, and then how much worse is that actually going to get in the education system because we're trying to erase gender now? They, I mean, honestly, yeah. I can't imagine. It's already so bad where we ignore the needs of boys versus girls in school, and I feel like that's only going to get worse, but that's a whole nother you know, rabbit hole to go down. I really want to focus on the public schools for a moment. Is it true that the public school model was intentionally built to keep kids from fostering their creativity? Yes. So <laughs> this is one of my favorite fun facts because it's actually pretty commonly known, but people think it's an urban legend and it's not. Uh, the education system was designed as it was It basically is in military industrial complex for kids like the way it works or the way it was designed is we had in the early 1800s we had no formalized education system in america at all and we had a lot of immigrants coming into the country we had a rapidly industrializing society so we had very different needs for a workforce than we'd had before and there was a lot of social unrest between, like, the Catholics, the Protestants, the Irish, the Italians, the freed slaves, especially in the North. Like, there was just a lot of tension between these social groups. And so the, you know, the people who were designing the education system and the elites at large, they wanted something to homogenize all of this a little bit, uh, erase some of this tension, make it easier for people to work together. And so... Horace Mann, who's basically the granddaddy of American education, went to Prussia because Prussia was in the business of invading and conquering people. And they developed their military had developed an education system that they would take to countries that they'd invaded and they would use it to subdue and control the populace. Mm. And so Horace Mann went and studied that and brought it back to the United States and said, hey, look, this is a really great way to get all like to, to build co social cohesion between groups that didn't necessarily fit. Because when you get in when people are kids, they're a lot more malleable yeah. than they are as adults. And then as our education system became more systematized on a national level in the early 20th century, it was funded by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Fords. And, you know, whether or not you're a fan of the titans of industry which, you know, that's a separate question, they had, you know, they they needed, like, practically, they needed people to work in their factories. And so, like, their interests, whether you have, you know, just, like, whether you have an opinion about it or not, their desire was to have people who could work in factories and fill all of the staffing needs that they had for their very rapidly growing companies. And when you look at the literature... It's very blatant the amount of both just like blatant uh, social engineering that was going on. When you look at the founding documents the and the writings of the people who are building the education system at the turn of the century, it's very obvious that these people wanted to – it was a social engineering experiment, like very explicitly. They wanted a system – where they could output a specific number of factory workers 
and farmers and longshoremen and all the different specific industries that they needed to fill. If you watch the movie Interstellar, Mm -hmm. I watched this last night, so it's top of mind for me right now. There's a scene at the beginning where Matthew McConaughey's character is at his kid's school, and he wants to know, well, like, what about my kid going to college? And they're like, well, we need farmers. Okay, so this is interesting. So you're saying, like, there was a purpose trying to all get them to go into that field. Is it fair to say that maybe now the objective of public school education has changed to now we need more activists, left-wing activists? Is that fair for me to say? I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion about that. Okay. I think there are a lot of factors at play. Got it. But originally, it was very inconvenient to have people who were too creative. Like, mm. again, the people who who founded our education system were very blatant. They weren't hiding this. They're like, we don't need more creative people. Like, that's what the top, like, that's what the top classes are for. Like, they'll go to college and study poetry and philosophy. And the average industrial worker doesn't need to trouble themselves with this because it's not really helpful in the, and I quote, humble problems of their lives. So creativity, it, it's hard to systematize. But now... Would you say that we've really gotten it wrong because we are still stuck in this notion of we need algebra and reading and science, but we don't really need the arts? I do think it's problematic. I think we can go down some real rabbit holes with this one because I have a lot of thoughts on all of this. But when you have a kid who, you know, they have a set of interests and proclivities and things that they're good at. You want to nurture them in their education in a way that's going to set them up to put those skills and aptitudes to use over mm -hmm. the course of their life. And so for kids that are really scientifically minded and they want to go in that direction, that's great. But a lot of kids are have more artistic inclinations. And that's good, too. We need, especially in the 21st century, where a lot of the more rote things can be automated and that's going to accelerate really rapidly we're going to we're going to want to have kids who are creative thinkers and creative problem solvers and coming up with ideas because more and more that's going to become the uniquely human stuff. And so the fact that we're educating them in a system that's totally beating that out of them and then trying to send them into a world that requires creativity perhaps more than any other time in history is just setting them up for failure. Well, not only just beating the creativeness out of kids, but we're also uh, really suppressing any urges to be doers or builders. Yes. And we have no one, it seems like, who knows how to do trades anymore. So when yes. these older people start passing away, that generation that does know how to build, you know, construction workers, plumbers, electricians, welders, we're not teaching kids to kind of go into those fields. We're telling them that's beneath you or, you know, that's like peasant work. And it's ridiculous because you can make more money yeah. as a plumber than you can as a poet. Exactly. Or someone who studied like a, a literature professor. And especially if you're you're skilled technically, but you also have an entrepreneurial mind and you can go start a business. Like there are so many brilliant people out there running multi-million dollar blue-collar businesses and making a killing and making the world a better place. Absolutely. But we're very, you know, it's it's considered like, well, if you're not good at school, which comes with all kinds of stigmas, then you go and do those things. Oh, I have questions for you on what do I do if my kid isn't good at school? Pull them out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's not your kid that's the problem. It's the school. It's the school. Yeah. How is separating subjects into blocks like math and reading and science getting it wrong? Well, I mean, when you think about how we interact with the world, we don't you know, break up our day into, okay, we're going to do some math stuff at the start of the day. <laughs> and then around 10 o'clock, we're going to do some reading. And then maybe at three o'clock, we'll have to write some emails. So we'll have to practice our writing skills, but we won't be using any math in that. Like it's, it's not how the world works. It's everything is integrated and it's helpful to break it out into pieces to learn about it, but only if you understand the context. And I find this is really interesting in, especially as people go farther and farther down the academic track. So if you're going into, like you go to high school and you kind of have areas of specialization, like things that you're good at, you take more electives in certain areas. And then you go to college and you take, you, you, know, you have a major, so you're specializing even more. And then maybe you go to get a master's or a PhD and then you're super hyper-specialized. You know, there's, there's benefit to that, mm -hmm. sure. But you're missing out on all the context of how everything fits together. And 
all of the successful entrepreneurs that I know, creative people I know, one of the things that always strikes me about them is that they're very well read across multiple disciplines, but their best ideas come from connecting areas that wouldn't look like they went together. Which one of you DM'd me last night and told me that you started using the Nimi Skincare Retinol Moisturizer that I have raved about before your high school reunion and then everyone ended up telling you that you look better than you did as a teen? I cannot remember your name, but I loved the story because there is something special about the Nimi Moisturizer. And I've been saying it for years. I put that on before bed, wake up, never look better. You'll have a more plump, hydrated look and a very bright and even skin tone. Plus, it reduces the appearance of surface fine lines and wrinkles. The retinol in it brightens and improves discolorations. The jojoba oil, jojoba, however you say it, you know what I'm talking about. And that has anti-inflammatory properties to really penetrate deep into the skin, create that moisturizing barrier to protect the skin from dehydration and environmental damage. There's aloe vera in it that has amazing regenerative properties that really helps prevent lines from getting even deeper. 10 out of 10, a die-hard product for me. Nimi Skincare is an openly conservative brand whose values are front and center in all of their marketing. Faith, family, freedom, femininity. Nimi Skincare is made in the USA. They do not test on animals. They use high-quality ingredients, share our values, and they live them out. No more giving money to brands that hate us and want to destroy America and don't even value their target customer base, which is women. Try Nimi Skincare today and just see if you like it, okay? You're due to restock your cleanser anyways. I know it because I saw into your cabinet last night. No, I'm just joking. I didn't do that. Or did I? Go to NimiSkincare.com and use code Alex Clark for 10% off. That's NimiSkincare.com with code Alex Clark for 10% off. Or just click the link in the description. So does that mean like if your kid goes outside for a play break and then they find a ladybug and they're asking you all these questions about ladybugs to be like, hey, you know what? Let's go read now a story about a ladybug and then let's go look up how ladybugs uh, have baby ladybugs or I don't know what. But you you kind of yeah. use something that they're naturally asking questions about. They're naturally inquisitive about. And then you can use that one thing to go into different lessons. Like let's use ladybugs to go into a reading because we're going to pick a story about that. We're going to go into science where whatever is yeah. that what you mean yeah you you've exactly got it and alex the the crazy thing is that we were designed to learn that way like if you don't have this top-down very bureaucratic interference system trying to get in the way for 12 years kids learn just like you described and they come out the other side honestly most of the time better functioning right in terms of their ability to interact in the real world like that's what unschooling is because i feel like kids naturally do want to learn it, it's they a do. natural that's why they're asking well why 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 do we do this mom yeah. why did you say this they're always asking questions they mm -hmm. always want to learn and i love the idea of kind of going at their pace and just seeing what they're naturally interested in that day that week that month but you know yeah. I'm not a parent yet, so I'm not allowed to have these types of thoughts or But you opinions. can have intuitions about how oh. all this works. Well, I've got a lot of intuitions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I grew up homeschooled, and that's what my experience was like. Like, my very first week of homeschooling, we saw some monarch butterflies that were migrating. And my mom was like, okay, we're doing monarch butterflies this week. And, like, we went and found some caterpillars, and we raised them in the terrarium, and we, like, fed them milkweed, and we drew pictures of monarch butterflies, and we read about them in books. And, like, that was science. Because that was what we were all curious about. And learning can be this really iterative process where you're interacting with the real world, which contextualizes the learning. So it actually makes more sense to the kid than it does if they're sitting in these really arbitrary rows with a textbook and they're learning like very abstract ideas that don't translate to the real world and aren't interesting to them because they don't see how they're useful. Like you can learn in context about whatever's occurring in the world around you. And if you just have your kids with you while you're doing life especially in elementary school. Like, they're going to pick up on all the stuff that they need to know because they're they're learning the basics. Like, the basics are the basics because they apply to everything. Exactly. So, like, math, like, basic arithmetic's everywhere, reading's everywhere, writing's everywhere. And if you just go about your life and you bring your kids with you and you narrate what's going on and you answer their questions and you dive down the rabbit holes that you're, they're curious about and you draw connections between the different subjects, they're going to get a very holistic and comprehensive education again, especially in elementary school, and it's going to make more sense to them 
than it did in the than it would have in the classroom. And they're not going to hate learning as much because they've associated learning all this time as something that's fun and curiosity driven and playful and not something that's coercive and forced and unpleasant, like doing, you know, your math quiz of the week in these boring fluorescent lit rows. And so your kid's going to be much more inclined to become a lifelong learner, too, because they're enjoying the process of learning. And it's something that to them is synonymous with life, which is what it should be. And parents are so afraid of getting it wrong with their kids. But it's really hard to get it wrong with your kids. This is a very controversial take. Most people don't agree with me about this. But I, this is a hill I will die on. It is very hard to get it wrong with your kids. And the people who tell you that that's not the case are just, I don't know, protecting their jobs, indoctrinated by the system, have never really thought critically about it, wherever you want to go with this. Uh, it's not true. My intuition tells me that we are not fostering a love of learning. We're really teaching kids to hate learning. We are. Oh, yeah. It's like the most implicit lesson of school is that learning is unpleasant. Mm. It's a universal experience with where kids sigh on Mondays and they sigh when it's back to school season and parent and adults still get this little twinge of like, oh, no, it's back to school season. Like, does, does the summer really have to be over? Like, we learn these very ingrained patterns about what learning is. And it's tragic because you talk to toddlers and they're so curious. They want to know about everything. And if you just leave that alone, that love of learning stays with them and is and it'll blossom yeah and it's a huge life asset too because the people who are growing and adapting and evolving and who are able to you know iterate and build throughout their lives you have to be learning in order to do that the world isn't a static place you can't just graduate from high school with a set of knowledge and like this is the package you're working with for the rest yeah. of your life and that's it so you need to be a lifelong learner but but school crushes that it also makes kids really complacent and really obedient and those things are also very detrimental for long-term you know life what? success. I I would like to see now, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, <laughs> but I would like to see less obedient kids. And what I mean by that is not disrespectful, but I want to see more risk takers. Yeah. I want to see kids be less afraid. Um and, and I think that those traits can really be important as they grow into adulthood. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, people love to use the classic Silicon Valley entrepreneur examples for this, where it's like, well, Steve Jobs wasn't afraid of getting it wrong. It's like, yeah, not every kid's going to be Steve Jobs. We don't want to live in a world that's full of Steve Jobs. It's like it would be a disaster if nobody well, else was doing the plumbing and all of the other things. Right. But in most cases, it is helpful to have a little bit of like, you know, I'm not afraid of failing. I'm not afraid of breaking the rules. I'm not afraid of doing this thing because I want to do it, even though everybody else is telling me I'm wrong. They get for the average person, a little bit of that is helpful. But it was it's baked into the system to discourage that from a very young age. And again, when you think about it, like if you're trying to design a very cohesive society where all the cogs are functioning very smoothly, if you have people who are asking too many questions... Things aren't going to run. You're going to start getting snags between the cogs. And well, what have we seen working. in the last two years? Don't ask questions. Just do what you're told. Mm -hmm. Don't don't question any science. Don't question. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and what would have happened if more people would have immediately said, "Wait, I have a question." You know. Um, now you brought up you were homeschooled. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your personal journey. With education for yourself, but also um, I'm assuming you have children. I don't actually. You don't? I don't. No. Okay. So tell us everything. <laughs> Does now, that discredit everything I just said? No. See, this is my thing. My unpopular opinion is that I don't think that you have to be a mother to have certain opinions on parenthood or education. I can look at different things in culture or in politics and not necessarily have lived that out and still say it's wrong. For example, yeah. I've never owned a slave, but I can still say slavery is wrong. So for me, I'm not saying that my opinion or things w can't change once you have your own kids, but I think it's totally okay to say, you know, this is what I think, or I'm more inclined to think that this is better. So talk about you were homeschooled and then what ended up pushing you then to start Rebel Educator and talking to other parents about not only just homeschooling, but you guys talk about lots of other types of schooling that could be better than just public school. Yeah. So I'll, I'm going to answer those in reverse. I'm going to talk about my backstory first and then the homeschooling part. So I I grew up homeschooled and that's part of why I do what I do is because like I am the proof that this 
works. Like I, I grew up homeschooled. I'm living a functional adult life now. Like it didn't ruin me and all of my potential to be homeschooled. And so I feel like I honestly feel like being homeschooled is one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I know that there were people who my parents were reading about who were homeschool graduates when they were trying to decide, like, does this homeschooling thing work? Can we try this? And so I really want to be a voice advocating for this because I feel like I got so lucky and I just want to share that. But I've also been working in alternative education ever since pretty much ever since I graduated from high school. Like I started teaching homeschool classes right after I graduated and then I became a tutor. Uh, and then I was working for a college alternative program for years called Praxis, where I was doing like basically it was a startup apprenticeship program for kids who wanted to go into the professional world but didn't go, want to go to business school. So I was a coach there. I became their program manager. So like I developed their curriculum and stuff. Um, so, so you I have got, a lot of education experience, yeah, like got, educator experience. Yeah. And I got really far into the weeds with that. And it kind of I always like to joke that I, I work in education by accident. Like I really didn't mean to do this. Like things just kept happening and I kept having fun. So I kept doing it. Um, and eventually Rebel Educator was born as like the sort of the synthesis of all the things that I was doing that I enjoy. Like I loved writing. I loved podcasting. I loved Twitter. I had a lot to say on all these platforms. I let a, met a lot of people that I wanted to work with and wanted to promote. Well, the Rebel Educator Twitter is what I first discovered. And then I told my team, we have to have this girl on because <laughs> the tweets were so juicy. <laughs> so juicy, just really poking the bear in terms of everything that you've thought about traditional education. Think differently about it. And I mm -hmm. loved that. Yeah. And for me, it's really funny because I'll talk to my friends who are very pro-alternative education but went to public school. And they'll tell me that my takes are just like a little different because I didn't go to public school and I don't see it. I'm like, what are you talking about? What do you mean this is weird? But there's just so much I missed because I was in – I was being homeschooled and not just your cliche. Well, she was homeschooled so she doesn't get all the pop culture references, which for me is totally true. <laughs> I definitely have some gaps. I, I think that's a good thing. But <laughs> I don't think I missed Arguably, much. Arguably, yeah. But, like, I just, I missed out on all of the, not just the, like, academic lessons that we think we're learning when we're in school, but the, like, underlying assumptions about how the world works because of the way school is structured. Like, my homeschool experience was super self-directed. It was super organic. It was when I was in elementary school, like, I spent most of my time playing because you really didn't need that much time to do academic work and keep up or far exceed what people were doing in traditional school. I started my first business when I was 12. Like entrepreneurship was a big part of my education. My high school experience was super self-directed. My parents basically just made sure I was meeting the state requirements for graduation. And I like found my materials, gave myself assignments. I was basically listening to recorded college lectures for all of high school. It was amazing. But Having that experience and then going out into the world and meeting all these people who'd had very different experiences and just had no conception that what I had done was an equally possible and really pretty frictionless route to take. Like it's it's really shockingly easy mm. to find all the materials that you need and all the resources and support that you need to deliver a homeschool experience that far exceeds what you're getting in the classroom because what you're getting in the classroom really truly is the bare minimum. Our standards are so low. And when you look at the numbers too of like what's coming out of public school, like most kids in high school, like their score, their test scores hardly improve at all yeah, let's, over the let's, course of four years. Let's dive into this because the cost of education keeps rising yes. while test scores are remaining relatively the same. So what does that tell us? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it tells us that the system's not working. It's like the McConaughey quote from Dazed and Confused. It's like, I keep getting older, but the high school girls all stay the same age. It's the same thing. The test, the cost keeps going up, but the scores stay the same age. Um, and most, and I didn't know this, but most Americans cannot read above a sixth grade level. 54%, according to the United States Department of Education. Like, they're not even hiding it. Over half. Over half. Yeah, that freaks I that I go out in public sometimes and I'm like, who who here can't read? I didn't know I didn't <laughs> raise know. your hand if you can't read. <laughs> Which to be very fair, like it's not anyone it's not these people's fault. Like, of course not. They they were I mean the way we we teach reading is broken. And we've known that for a really long time. Like the education system insisted on teaching kids to read 
to not teach kids phonics and to yes. teach them to read the whole, please, whole words. Please tell me that you listen to the Soul to Story podcast. Yeah. When I tell you, I, I want that podcast to win awards. I thought it was one of the best podcasts that I've listened to in the last several years. And if, if you haven't listened to Soul to Story, it's a short series, and this investigative journalist just dove into, wait a minute, she discovered the kids in our public schools all across the United States aren't actually reading. They do not know how to read. No, they're memorizing what words look like, and when they when they don't know what a word is, they guess, and they yes. often get it wrong. And they're told to look at a picture and just, well, based on what's happening in the picture, what do you think this sentence is saying? It's just guessing. Yeah. And so— also, what's happening is that all these kids are like, well, I hate reading. Well, I don't love, you know, I don't love literature. I don't have this love of reading. Well, who who would if it's terribly hard to do or you don't even know how? And it's crazy because I often talk to people in my network who are who are good readers and prolific readers. And I ask them, like, did you like you never learned phonics? And they're like, I did, but like, I guess my mom taught me. Like, I guess I learned it at home. I, I don't really know. I knew it before I went to school in the first place. And so even though people think that, well, you have to send your kid to school for them to get a good education, kids are already getting the most important stuff at home. Right. And and so this is something, too, that Rebel Educator really goes into is telling parents, okay, because I get this all the time because I'm always going hard on homeschool, homeschool, homeschool your kids. Mm -hmm. But parents will say, well, I can't, you know, <laughs> I can't for whatever reason. They're, they're a single parent. They can't afford it. Just because there's a lot of stereotypes, which I'm not, I'm going to have another guest on specifically about homeschooling very soon. And we will go into the stereotypes and myths about homeschooling and what is true and what isn't. But what I'm saying is you talk a lot about how, okay, so so let's say you're right. You, you have to send your kids to public school. Here are ways that you can basically supplement their education and make sure that they're getting what they need when they're not within those four walls. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot... Like, not every parent can pull their kid out of the system. Not every parent want, wants to. Not every kid wants to. And all of that's fine. Like, I'm very I'm very much an advocate for abundance of options mm -hmm. in education. I think our biggest problem is that we've been assuming for the better part of a century that there is one correct way to educate kids. And it's serving, like, it's targeted at the middle. And there are a lot of kids on both sides of the bell curve that are just getting completely lost, lost or smothered by the way that the system works, and even the ones in the middle are only being, you know, adequately served. They're not being exceptionally served. But so we, there, it's good to have an abundance of different options. Public schools aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And there are a lot of reasons why people don't want to homeschool or they can't. Um, Do you think we people, should just get rid of the Department of Education entirely? Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I can't believe we haven't done this already. Uh, yes, we absolutely should. But parents who think that they're not qualified to homeschool those parents you are everyone you is. are if you're worried about it you are yeah that's <laughs> like if thing. you're thinking that hard about it you're you're doing all the right things you're going to be fine everything you need is on the internet but for parents who can't pull their kids out of the system for whatever reason like both parents need to work their kids are really social and doesn't want to leave there's some other you know financial pressure or whatever going on you can do so much to counteract what's going on in school or supplement it with your kids. What are a few examples of that? Yeah. So my favorite one is just reading out loud with your kids because so many kids never experience reading in a fun way. It's just a thing you do in a classroom because a teacher told you you should. And if you're in, you're sitting in at home maybe after dinner or at bedtime and like as a family and you're reading books together, that's just such a fun experience. And as your kids like teach them phonics and as their reading capacity expands, like give them a chance, like maybe it's their night to read the book. Like you alternate back and forth, uh, play math games with your kids, like take them to the grocery store and have them calculate how much, like calculate the total of what's in your cart. And, you know, if you have multiple kids, like whoever gets close enough, Whoever gets closest to the total wins. Like, teach them how to round and stuff. Um, play budgeting games. Attach the things that they're learning in school to the real world. Like, draw, like, bring them back down into the dirt. Draw that context. Root them in a way that school 
isn't. Like, if they're learning about writing, have them write a letter to somebody. Mm. If they're, have them write, like, a write someone a in prison. story together. A prison pen pal! I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more like a friend of grandma's who can tell them, right, like, fun yeah. stories. But, who, I mean, whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> what are other countries doing right now that America isn't? Like, is there a destination country, you think, for children's education? I don't know. I actually think, I mean, there th- many countries are doing things differently. And mm-hmm. if you go into Asia, like a lot of those com- countries are vastly outperforming the U.S. in terms of test scores. Like we're just kind of grandfathered in at the top of the employment hierarchy at this point because, you know, we're we're the center of the economy. But we're not actually the most competitive in terms of like raw academic outputs. And which is very interesting as it becomes easier and easier for countries to hire people in other countries, companies to hire people in other countries. We're kind of I think a lot of people are in for a rude awakening when they realize that there is someone in China or India or or Thailand or something or the Philippines who can actually is like actually more qualified on every front. Like they actually speak. They have better grammar. Right. And they have better math skills and they can do the job better. And those countries are doing like I think there's a lot of. There's a lot of issues with these hyper-academic countries, too. At least in my personal opinion, there's a lot of just, like, drill and kill. Like, we're just going to master memorizing all of this stuff, but not really solving the context problem. Like, the the, the creative outputs aren't necessarily matching. Yeah, how, the, how much time during a day is a kid even actually learning? You mean practically in, in our in education system right now? In, in a traditional <laughs> public school, how many hours a day is a kid even actually learning sitting there? I don't know the hard number, but it's very it's very little. Yeah, because think you have to think about how much time is spent redirecting the room. Okay, you know, all the kids are talking. We have to take a break for this. This mm-hmm. kid is having trouble, so I have to pause the lesson to help this kid. Yeah, well, there's also another way of looking at, at answering this question is looking at how quickly kids can catch up on what was missed. So if you have a kid who uh, was behind for some reason or maybe they were being unschooled and then they need to re-enter the traditional system and hit some benchmarks or whatever, kids can catch up on everything that they're learning, again, especially in elementary school, very quickly with a small amount of very focused study, uh, especially if you're learning things like apps to teach, like math especially, because apps are way more adaptive than a classroom setting. Like in a classroom, you're just sort of handing out worksheets, teaching to the the common denominator and not you're, – you're hoping everybody follows along, but like a 60% can be a passing grade. Yeah. So you can, under, you can understand 60% of a, of a subject and be considered like you've learned the subject, but there's 40% of that that you don't know. Mm. And then you're building on those gaps – in the next class, like you, you, you understand sixty or seventy percent of fractions, and then you understand sixty or seventy percent of pre-algebra, and then like sixty to seventy percent of algebra one. But you've missed like thirty to forty percent of everything that's going on in all of these subjects. But you're, you're, you've passed. Like technically, you've learned these things. Let me tell you something. I, I uh, technically passed algebra one in high school, but I could not. I couldn't do it. Well, it's it, and, and that's really common, but it's really problematic when you start building on top of your like building foundation, like you're building stories onto a foundation that's full of holes. So the yep. whole thing just starts to like buckle under the weight. Like if because you have to do fractions in algebra. Right. So if you don't understand how to do different problems, you can't do the, the algebra problems either. And so there's all kinds of that going on, too. So when kids like kids can catch up on all of those things very quickly which indicates that they really don't need nearly as much time as we're giving them to learn these things in the first place. We're just doing it incredibly inefficiently. Let's talk about how you know if your kid is bad at school or actually just bored. It's probably the latter. <laughs> Explain that. Because people are like, what do you mean? <laughs> well, so let me let, let me let me give some context because it's, it is more complicated than that. Um, one, kids have different aptitudes. So and kids also learn at different paces. And so some kids are ready to learn how to read at like four and they'll teach themselves. And then other kids are eight and they'll still struggle with reading. But the difference between the reading levels closes statistically when 
like once you hit a certain age range, like by the time kids get into middle school, like it really doesn't matter if they were four or eight when they learned how to read. Like they, the eight year olds catch up very quickly. Oh, so all the parents that brag because their kids are learning to read earlier, it actually doesn't really matter. It I mean, it matters a little bit, but basically it balances itself out. Yeah. Um, but because kids' brains develop at different paces mm-hmm. and kids are good at different things. Some kids have better spatial awareness. Some kids are better, like they're just like wired to be bookworms. Other kids are really great at math. Uh, some kids are really good at things that school doesn't measure for and they spend their whole lives thinking that they're just not smart. Yeah. But really they're like very socially smart and not book smart. And it's very sad that they think that they're not good at things when they are. But generally speaking – um, especially the types of kids that are getting in trouble consistently for goofing off in class. Like, those kids are very rarely not good at school. Most of the time, those kids are very smart, and they're painfully and excruciatingly bored. And they're just trying to get someone's attention or do something to break out of the monotony. And they get flagged as troublemakers and not non-academic kids and not good at school. Uh, but really, it's just the system's fault. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not a teacher's fault. Like, they have a classroom full of 30 kids. What are they supposed to do? Right. But the system is not designed to serve. It's designed to, to again, create as like, as uniform a set of outputs as possible. And any chaff that gets lost in the process is just, you know. Can I be honest? Sometimes I just do the bare minimum for dinner, okay? I'm human. I'll warm up some beef tallow in a skillet. I'll put a steak on with seasoned salt, pepper, and garlic powder. I'll sear it for like 12 minutes total, okay? Two minutes back and forth on each side, and voila. I put a little primal kitchen steak sauce, seed oil-free baby, on my plate, and that's really it. Now, is that a balanced meal? No. Sometimes is it just faster and easier? Yep. But because my meat all comes from Good Ranchers. It's the best quality and flavorful meat that's 100% grass-fed and grain-finished from ranches and farms in Middle America, hand-cut, hand-trimmed, and aged 21 days. She's legal to reach the optimal tenderness and richest flavor possible. Now, the process of starting a Good Ranchers subscription is simple, and you can pause your subscription at any time. If you want to try some stuff out, you can even purchase most of Good Ranchers products as a one-time purchase as well. So I always recommend doing the subscription because you're going to get tons of perks and no long-term commitment. You can pick the shipping frequency that you think is best for your family, and you can always change that frequency later, all right? Like if it's just you, single girl out on the town like me, you meet Mr. Right, like I hope to, and then, you know, you need more steak, well, you can just adjust that. And then you sit back and you get free shipping on all orders and a consistent price on all orders of your subscription forever. That is how it works and how buying meat is supposed to work. Ready to save on meat for your family, decrease trips to the grocery store, and support American farmers? Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Clark with code Clark, and you'll get $20 off plus free bacon for a year. Start a Good Ranchers subscription today and get 24 ounces of Applewood smoked bacon added to each box for a year for free. This is 100% American, high-quality bacon sourced from local farms worth over $200. $200. This offer won't last forever, so you should act now before it's gone. Get $20 off and free bacon for a year by going to GoodRanchers.com slash Clark with code Clark or click the link in the description. Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. Well, now, every time I say, every time I talk trash about public school, I have parents saying, well, that's why my kids go to private. But (laughs) is private better? Is that necessarily the case? No. Um, Most private schools, there are many, this is a very sweeping statement, I'll clarify in a second, because there are many exceptions here. But the average private school is running basically the same curriculum as the public school, just in different colors. It's the same thing, but it's a religious school. Mm. Or it's the same thing, but it costs more money. Or has a better, I don't know, better amenities or, you know, whatever. Well, and a lot of conservative parents, because my audience is primarily conservative, they say, well, I want my kids to go to a private school because I want to avoid all the woke stuff. But what they yeah. don't understand is the woke stuff is everywhere. I mean, that is in your private schools and your public schools But at this also, point. the woke stuff is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the problems. It's the most painful expression of all of this. But it's not it's not the like it's it's a symptom of much deeper, honestly, more insidious 
really? things. Be- yeah, because again, it's the it's the conformity, it's the deference to authority. It's the not thinking for yourself, but doing what someone else is telling you you should be doing. Like all of those things are setting the the stage for the wokeism in the first place. And those things, even if you're sending your kid to a school where like it has really conservative values and the wokeism isn't there, most private schools aren't innovating that part out. So they're still getting the the classroom settings, the very like abstract feeling to a child subject subject like divisions and, mm-hmm. and separations. And they're they're still on like they're still being measured by grades in specific subjects that someone 100 plus years ago decided was important to measure. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about alternative schooling methods. So besides yeah. public and private and homeschool, what are the what are the other options for parents? Well, private is a very big that's why I said some caveats at the beginning of my answer, because private school is a very big umbrella and there's a lot of much more innovative schooling that's going on in the private sector that's very exciting. Um, and there's a lot of different language that gets batted around to describe different types of schools. Some people call them progressive schools. Other people are like, no, we don't like that word. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's kind of complicated. But I use the word innovative schools. Because so what me, falls under that, like Montessori or something? Montessori for sure. Montessori is fantastic. I'm a huge fan of Montessori education. Where does Waldorf um, fall on your list? I, I'm very partial to Waldorf because I had a very Waldorf-inspired That's elementary education. Favorite. That's the one that I gravitate towards. It's really, it's really beautiful. I think from what I've read, and I'm not an expert on this, I think there, like, there's some interesting research to delve into and like the outcomes between Waldorf and Montessori and like arguments to be made for which one's like better on a technical front. I find Waldorf education very beautiful. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm very partial to it. I almost but, feel like a good mix, like Waldorf in early years and then go into kind of a Montessori style. But I don't know. Is that common with homeschool parents is mixing different styles? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, And that's one of the beauties of homeschooling is you can find the exact mix that fits your kid and you can kind of break out of the the idea that you have that there's one right model for Mm -hmm. your kid and you have to find the right one that fits. It's like, no, you can pick the best thing out of like 10 of them and (laughs) design the perfect education for your kid. But the but even like Waldorf and Montessori are like they're they're really lovely models, but they're again just the tip of the iceberg of what's being developed. Um, especially with the advent of the internet, there's a lot of different types of online schools that are cropping up. There are game-based online schools, like Synthesis is one. It was built off of um, Elon Musk's Ad Astra school that he designed for his kids and the kids at SpaceX, uh, or the kids of SpaceX employees. And it's like their whole thing is that kids play video games that are teaching them like problem solving and critical thinking skills. So they're like, playing as teams trying to figure out how to solve complex problems and like that school Mm. um i'm a really big fan of world schooling which is online school but for kids all over the globe so it's divided into like maybe like three or four time zones around the globe and there's classes and kids your kid can be taking a class with like a kid in switzerland and a kid in the philippines and a kid in australia and like you know building not just taking classes on things they're interested in, but also like building a global network, which is such cool context I for like a that. kid to have. I like that. Um, micro schools are really awesome. I'm a huge what fan of that? the micro school movement. Oh. <laughs> I've never heard about, of that. I'm about to send you down a rabbit hole. Send me. <laughs> micro schools are awesome. Um, so micro schools are very loose term because, you know, there's there's not a hard definition for how many students counts as a micro school. But the simplest way to describe it is it's a modern twist on the one-room schoolhouse idea. So it's a smaller it, – it, oftentimes microschools are running like in someone's home or in a church, but often too they'll, they'll rent a building. And it's usually a mixed-age environment. Um, it's running off of some type of – some type of educational philosophy. There's, you know, there's a lot of different types of educational approaches you can run with, but it's like a very 
localized, decentralized, grassroots approach to education where some educator in the community or a parent is like, I want to do school a little bit differently. Mm. A lot of these are run by educators who are fed up with the public school system and have left. There's a lot of those. And they've started a classroom of their own for mixed age kids in the community. And it's small and has no administration, so it can run on a much lower budget. Um, like a lot of the the education savings account programs that are either like if you have in Arizona, um, Arizona's universal education savings account program where parents can take the money that would be normally allocated to yep. the local district. They can take it any to any school of their choice or homeschool program. It's super exciting. There's a lot of movements like that happening around the country. It's a very, um, very cool thing. Very and, cool. Which who knows if how long that's going to stick around because now we have Governor <laughs> Katie Hobbs. So I, I don't know, but it, it is very neat. But it's very exciting in terms of changing, like the conversations change so much around what's possible. But that, like it's, I think in Arizona, it's 750 or 7,500 roughly dollars per kid. Um, like that's enough to run a micro school. Yeah. If you have like 10 kids, that's enough to pay a parent or a teacher a full-time salary to teach. And these teach. are things, if your state doesn't offer a program like this, these are the types of things that you bring to your local legislators and you say, hey, we need to change some things. I'd like to see this and get the other homeschool parents or unschool parents or whatever around you to kind of rally behind it and start asking for these things. Um, yeah. Let's talk tangibles. Mm. What are five things that a parent can do today to start de-schooling their kid? <laughs> You're putting me on the spot now. Um, there are so many things. Uh, one is to, like, encourage your kid asking questions because school stifles. There's, I forget the exact numbers, but there are studies that have been done on how many questions children ask. And a kid preschool asks well over a hundred questions an hour. Oh my gosh. And by the time kids get like into elementary school and they've had a few years of schooling, that number drops to like maybe one an hour. Like they stop asking questions. Oh, that's heartbreaking. And some some of it's developmental. Like, you know, you go through your peak question asking phase when, you know, it's it's a cliche everybody knows, the why years. And then, you know, you you're making more sense of the world. You're asking fewer questions, but you're not asking one an hour. Mm. And so encourage your kid asking questions, not just of you, but of adults around them, because that's like a really big, scary thing in school. Okay. To ask an adult that you don't know a question, but encourage that. What's number two? Ask, uh, encourage creativity. Again, school's not doing that. Like you have, when you think about art in the classroom, everybody gets the same coloring page and everybody's supposed to do it in the same colors. It's not creative at all. It's formulaic. And creativity isn't a formulaic thing. And it needs to be messy and wild and emergent and, like, look a little insane when you're in the middle of it. It's like, I'm sorry, you're rigging up what in the living room? And where Where did I thought I hid those scissors? Like, what are you doing? Like, you need to let your kid run with that a little bit. Okay. Because... That create that creative spark is one is driving the questions, but two is going to drive their creative capacity and their thinking capacity um, so over the course of their entire life. Three is have your kid like encourage them to 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 push back and not just take your word for it which is a really scary thing when you're a parent sometimes. And that can be challenging, I think, yeah. for parents. It's You want to be able to say, like, because I said so, and then move on, you know? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, but but encourage that. Okay. Um, four, encourage learning for fun and encourage learning about things that are not academically relevant at all. Um encourage your kid to go down rabbit holes and chase things that they're curious about and there's like no clear benefit whatsoever and you might think it's a total waste of time but encourage it mm -hmm. because school's killing that um and then five like break them out of a lot of the implicit assumptions that school's starting to layer on them in terms of what you're supposed to be when you grow up and how you're like even the asking the question what do you want to be when you grow up 
and like assigning labels to like, well, this is good and this is bad and I did a good job on this and this isn't very, this like this isn't, I didn't do a very good job on this coloring page or whatever. Like all of those things that are, that they're starting to learn how to self-censor the way they're thinking about what they're doing and putting themselves into a box, push back on that, that desire that school has to push them in that direction and like stop trying to prune them so much into a perfectly shaped thing. Let them be a little wild for a while. Is there a common denominator between exceptional people in history and their childhood experiences? Very much so. Yes. Um, there are there are a few. Um, there's a really great article on Substack about this that my friend Henrik Carlson wrote uh, for people who like really want to go down the rabbit hole, that's where I would send you because this is a fascinating rabbit hole. But yes, there are a lot of exceptional people in history were actually homeschooled. Um, I was just writing about this, how Laura Ingalls Wilder was homeschooled for a lot of her education. And people don't really think about that part of her story. But like hmm. she was a homeschooler for yeah. a lot of time. She lived in a log cabin with no schools around. Who else? Um, all kinds of people like Virginia Woolf, Blaise Pascal. Um like you you start you start breaking down like i mean anybody in history like so many people were homeschooled well, uh, and Fre also Frederick Douglass like he's oh. a great he's he didn't even he was not, he wasn't even homeschooled like he had to fight against the adults in his life to get an education he's a great example of what kids are capable of well and then all the silicon valley people the big tech people what i find interesting is that they do not send their kids uh typically to traditional public no. school and they no. also do not let their kids use tech they don't like ipads and all that kind of stuff for their little kids yeah, I mean, it definitely depends on the entrepreneur. It's not an absolute. But yeah, there's a lot of, it, they're not quite as, they don't, they they went through the system. They know what worked and what didn't for them. A lot of them ended up dropping out of universities too. Um, and they they do look for different education criteria for their kids. But yeah, the kids who are like, when you think about the great writers of history or the great, the great novelists, the great uh, scientists and intellectuals, the great inventors, they had to have, like, they had to have space to develop their own set of questions and their own ideas about the world and their own interests. Like, you can't be obsessively focused on writing the next great novel if all your time is filled and you're never bored and you're never left with this time to ask thing. questions. We, as a culture have, I feel, pressurized parents to always think you're not a good parent if your kid doesn't have a schedule and they every single moment of their day is not scheduled out and they're doing something. This is the time that we go on a play date. Now, this is the time that we go to softball. This is the time that we do this. And really having some wiggle room of some hours where your kids don't have everything scheduled out and they can just say, okay, I have several hours. I have an afternoon where I can just try to entertain myself or be creative or, you know, build a fort in the backyard. Those are really crucial to child's to children's development, right? Yeah, this might be my most controversial opinion is that your child it's it's important for your child to be bored. It's also possible to over socialize your kid. Like everybody's worried about their homeschooled kids not being socialized enough, but we're not looking at the opposite end of the spectrum, which is where the average kid sits, which is they have no time in their day where they're not around other kids. They're in school, in class from, you know, eight in the morning to three in the afternoon. And then they go to soccer practice and then they go to like whatever club they're a part of. And then they have like other activities all weekend and they're around kids all the time. Yeah. And they never have a chance to discover who they are when no one else is asking them to be anything. And there's so much potential that gets wasted when you don't know, you don't even know who you want to be. And we just, you can just kind of go on autopilot. You know, you consume the same pop culture things that everybody else consumes. And you talk about, you make all the same jokes and all the same references. And you have all the same assumptions about what you want to do with your career. And then you like go to college because it's what you do. And then you come out at the end of college. And that's for a lot of people is where they have their moment of reckoning where they're like, wait a second. I don't know if I even like this subject that I majored in. I don't even know that I want to do this. I don't quite know how I ended up here. And that's a, that's pretty common for people to have a quarter-life crisis. All the time. It's, it's most of my friends. So I did not go to college. Most of my friends did. And mm -hmm. like clockwork, almost all of them graduate from college and then they say, oh, I don't even, this isn't even what I want to do for my career. And then they yeah. didn't even end up doing something career-wise that had to do with their major. Yeah. 
It was a huge waste of money and time. Culturally, American parents really seem to place a lot of value on education above childhood, which is kind of what we're talking about. You know, how early is my child reading? Um, Doing multiplication tables, memorizing the periodic table. But how is putting pressure on those measurements a mistake? Well, one, it's discrediting all of the other things that also could make your child great. Like maybe your kid isn't great at the like book learning, but they're actually an amazing innovator and entrepreneur, but you're not measuring it. So you don't see it. Um, But also like you're teaching your kid to think in those terms as like their worth is tied to their, their measurements in performance. And we see this when we look at the depression rates and the anxiety rates of kids, especially in high school, it's through the roof. It's ridiculous. There's no reason for 14, 15, 16-year-olds to be so depressed and anxious that they can barely get out of bed in the morning and they need to be on on meds to get through the week. Mm-hmm. Like that's tragic that our kids end up there, but we're we're putting so much pressure on them that's so unnecessary because a lot of times it doesn't even matter. Like does 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 it matter in your like you're you're killing it. You're a podcast host, you're doing all this awesome stuff. Does it really matter what grade you got in no. algebra when you were in ninth never grade? It's never mattered. It's and never mattered. The kids think their whole future rests on this. Like they're yeah. gonna ruin their entire lives. And I think honestly um, my parents, obviously, they were going to ask questions if I came home with really bad grades, but there were subjects that I would always, my whole life, probably average to see in. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I would get an A in something like Honors English, where I could do creative writing and do all these things. I was in uh, radio and TV electives all throughout high school. Then I ended up pursuing this as a career. Yeah. So it was like, they kind of were very supportive of, there are certain subjects that Alex really excels in, and then there are subjects that she doesn't care for, and she does met on, but they weren't just on my my butt the whole time like you've got to get an A in math when I hated math and I wasn't into it I wasn't good at it either but I just I didn't care about it and I I knew in my heart that nothing math related was what I was going to do for a career also but um, I, I, w- I want to ask you why is aiming for your child to be fine and normal a terrible goal for parents well, look at everything we've talked about in this conversation normal means you can read at a sixth grade level and you've like graduated from high school. But what does that what does that mean when you look at the academic performance? Your kid goes through high school and they barely learn anything and they still can't read at a sixth grade level. And you're like, well, my kid's normal, so they're fine. Like we're we're settling for this very, very mediocre set of standards because it's safer for us to all fail together than it is to strike out and take a risk on your own. Like it's really scary to buck the status quo. It's really scary to be the one person in your neighborhood or the one person in your extended family who's not sending their kid to school. And you get a lot of pushback because people kind of get offended too. They're like, I'm sorry, is this is this not what I'm doing not good enough for you? Ugh, it's, it's like, well, worse. kind of, no. But, <laughs> <laughs> but also like... It's hard. Like if you mess up, you know, if if everybody goes to public school and they all fail together, it's like, well, we were doing what we were supposed to do and we all did it together. And like we're all in this together. If you buck the status quo and you go do something totally different and your kid fails, that's really scary. And even if your kid is successful, people have a really hard time seeing that. I see this all the time with families who homeschool their kids and their kids are successful adults and the grandparents like still don't really understand like what's going on. They're just kind of confused. What you're describing is being a rebel. Yes. Which is the name of Rebel uh, Educator. <laughs> what you do is Rebel Educator. So yes. what is Rebel Educator? What sorts of resources do you provide parents? And uh, how do you teach parents how to be a rebel educator themselves? Yeah. So Rebel Educator is the way I describe it is like we're a jumping off point. So we're trying to help as many parents exit the public school system as possible. And we're trying to save as many kids from the clutches of the public school system as possible. We're trying to save their potential, basically. Um, so we're, we're a starting point. Like when you are trying to figure out, OK, public school is not working. What do I do? The hope is that you find us. You come to us and we we can start answering some of those questions for you. So we have a website that's full of content on everything from really practical advice, like, okay, your kid's struggling in to learn to read. What can you do? Should you even be worried about this? Here's how to think about it. Mm. Uh, how to add more entrepreneurship into your kid's education, stuff like that. 
Um, we have a lot of content on like how we got here in the per first place, the history of the public school system, breakdown of breakdowns of different types of education models, kind of how to how to like set mental models in your own head around how you're thinking about your kids' education and like how to choose like how do you choose a school? You know that like can you homeschool? Are you equipped to do that? What resources are out there? Uh should we choose a private school? Like what type of private school should we choose? Should we do online school? Should we do a micro school? There's a lot of questions that parents have. So we're trying to help them answer them. Um, and then, you know, we're doing, uh, we have a, a soon to be launched podcast. By the time this goes live, the podcast might be live too. Uh, so people can check that out as well. And we're just facilitating conversations with people about education and trying to be very rebellious about it. Like we're saying all the things that Maybe isn't polite to say, but it's important to say. Absolutely. Like what people think. Most things I've found that are are actually important and life changing, I've improved my life, are the things I'm quote unquote not supposed to talk about. And <laughs> education is one of those yeah. things. And it's so weird too that it's something it's something you're not supposed to talk about. Like it's not polite, but it's also people kind of get bored with it. No, like, it's we're so kind of, interesting. We're kind of unusual, you and I, and that we don't have kids, but we really care about this. Like a yeah. lot of people, are like, well, I don't have kids yet. So I don't need to worry about this. Yeah, no, like, no, worry about it now because the thing is, is that that's why everybody asks me. They're like, "Why do you like all these parenting books and homeschool books and all this?" And I'm like, "Because I want to have an idea of that stuff now. I don't want to wait till I don't want to have nine months and then I have to figure out everything." Right. Like, so I'm like, I'm interested <laughs> in it now. And here's the thing: even if I am not called to be a biological mother in my life, as women, I do believe that God has placed a calling on us to mentor other children. Oh, yeah. And there's different capacities and how that looks, whether it's your nieces and nephews or kids in your neighborhood or, you know, kids at your church, whatever. I think all of us are called to kind of be that mentor and look out for children in our communities. And I think we have lost that in society today is we're yeah. not raising kids with the help of a village. And so I'd love to be that person. And maybe, you know, part of the way that I do that is through this podcast and having people like you, Hannah, on. So where is uh, your website and what's the name of the Twitter and all that stuff for people? Yeah. So the website is rebeleducator.co. Uh, you can find the Twitter is at uh, Rebel Educator on Twitter. We also have a Substack newsletter if you're into that sort of thing. It's rebeleducator.substack.com. Uh, you can find my personal Twitter, too, which is at Hannah Frankman, which is sometimes where I post some of the spicier stuff, actually. Ooh. Like the really hot takes sometimes go there. Um, and that's where you'll find updates on podcasts and stuff, too. Amazing. Once that goes live. And yeah, I mean, this is I, I I care a lot about this, even though I don't have kids, because like education is the future of everything. If, if, we, if we're not educating the next the next generation, well, nothing else matters. So thank you, Hannah, for coming on this spillover. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. This has been so much fun. My social media manager asked me the other day, she's like, Alex, what subjects are you really into discussing with your friends right now, like in your personal time? And I was like, education, 100%. Education, styles and methods, all the ways that we failed kids in this area. I cannot get enough of it. I'm so passionate about it. And so soonish, I am in contact with a pretty well-known homeschool mom of multiple children. I want to have her on to talk all things homeschool, busting myths and stereotypes, talk about different methods, logistics, literally all of it. And then next week is for the theology nuts. It's hot take after hot take, and it's going to conjure up some very heated debates with this audience, which I cannot wait to see. They say some stuff about the end times that I've literally never heard before, some stuff about heaven that I've never heard before. And of course, all of this is coming out just in time for Easter because we love it when the Christians and the Catholics fight each other right before Easter. It's all a family here at the end of the day. The Spillover is back next Thursday at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Now, if you learned something new today, tell me what it was in your five-star review. Please and thank you. I'm Alex Clark, and this is The Spillover. Love you. Mean it. Bye. Bye.